right. Thank you, Sid. Give me one second to set up here. All right, before I begin, I just want to give a couple of thank yous uh, out to some people in particular. Um, thank you, Keith, for preaching a few weeks ago uh, when I had to cancel very, very last minute. Uh, Keith stepped in and was willing to preach uh, while I was sick with COVID. So thank you for that. Steve, thanks for preaching on Christmas Day and um, just sacrificing some of your family time to be here and serving the Lord that way. Um, thank you for Stephanie, my wife, for leading the songs those two weeks I wasn't around. And also thank you, Josh, Gabby, and Steph, for leading in music this morning. It was, um, it was a blessing to be able to sit, to look at the cross, to just sing without necessarily having to be in front. So uh, thank you for that opportunity. Thank you for blessing me that way. And also, church, thank you so much for your prayers for me and my family as um, you know, I got COVID a few weeks ago at Christmas time. And also, uh, thank you so much for just the love offering, the love gift that, that we've received from you. Thank you for just um, just showing us appreciation and love that way. It, it, it's, um, it means a lot, and, and it's, a, it's been a pleasure uh, serving here at the church and and it's, um, I was just reflecting on my life a bit. It's, it's crazy how the Lord's using me at the church I grew up going to my whole life, where I'm, you know, downstairs running in the hallways, kicking balls after service, and now I'm yelling at the kids to not do that, uh, the very thing that I used to do when I was little. But I'm just kidding. I don't yell at them. Sometimes I kick the ball with them. But um, again, I just want to say Happy New Year. I'm not sure if you do this, but most people in the New Year, they do a New Year's resolution. Uh, they say something like this, right? This year I'm going to commit, and this year my life is going to be different, and I'm going to do this and not fail at it. And most of the time, the most popular resolution is usually something that sounds like this. This year is the year I'm going to the gym every day. I'm going to get my life back together. I'm going to lose the extra weight. I'm going to eat healthy. This is the year where I'm going to get some muscle. And it usually takes about three weeks for that resolution to morph into something like, you know, I can go, I'll go three times a week. Three times a week I will go to the gym because I can't do Mondays, I can't do Tuesdays, or maybe I can do Sundays after church, right? And then without knowing it, weeks go by, months go by, and now you haven't stepped foot in the gym, and I call it you become a donor of the gym. You're just freely giving your money, supporting the gym without actually getting any of the benefits for it. And I know this is the story because it's been my resolution this past year, or probably two years ago. Stephanie and I have been proud donors of the gym for this past year, and she had more of an excuse not to go because she was pregnant, so I really didn't have an excuse. But this year, this is the year I'm going to the gym every day. I'm just kidding. Uh, well, I shouldn't kid. Maybe I'll go every other day. Um, but I want to take it a step deeper, or more spiritual. Don't raise your hands, but how many of us have actually said something like this? Right? This year I want to read the Bible every day for the whole year without skipping a day, and, and I'm going to do it, and, and no excuses. I'm sure most of us have said something like that. I have. And then what happens is you get to the end of about February, beginning of March, and you hit uh, Leviticus, and you're like, uh, maybe I'll go back to the New Testament for a little bit. And, and, and what happens is you just you progressively get worse and worse at it. And, and before you know it, you're like, man, I'm, I'm way behind. I better read the three days worth I missed today to catch up. And it feels more of a chore 
than really this, this joy of a relationship with spending time with the Lord. And uh, this week in particular, I, I had a sermon in the bank. I had one from a few weeks ago, and I was going to preach on, on the I am statements. And I'm still going to go, I'm going to revisit them. But today I want to uh, shift focus a little bit. And, and really, I felt led by the Lord to maybe preach something a little bit more applicable to, to today, which is the new year. And for some reason, this whole week, I just kept asking myself this question, how can I be better? Pretty, pretty vague, but how can I be better? <clears throat> and more specifically, I'm thinking for myself, how can I be a better minister? How could I be a better youth leader? How could I be a better church member? How can I be a better husband, a better father? Right? How can I be a better Christian for the Lord? If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Sid read the first 21 verses together. And what I want to do is I want to take some time, I want to focus on a few select verses from that passage. And this week I, I really struggled uh, if you look in the bulletin, you'll see there's a lot of blank spaces for songs, for scripture reading, for the sermon. It just has my name. I was really just stressed, and, and I couldn't figure out really where I felt the Spirit was leading me until about late Thursday night. Um, so Ephesians chapter 5, I want to give you a little bit of context because we're jumping in towards the end of the book. So Ephesians is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul around 60 to 62 AD, about 30 years after Jesus Christ died and rose again. He was actually in Rome in prison while he was writing this letter to the Christians in the city of Ephesus. Now the Christians in Ephesus were mainly or mostly Gentiles that Paul had previously ministered to. And the city itself was pretty impressive and it was very spiritual. They had this amphitheater which could seat 25,000 people. If you don't know what that number looks like, double the population of Lake Grove and add a little bit more. That's about 25,000 people. They also had something called the Temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. People would go to this temple and they'd worship the goddess Artemis. The city was also full of voodoo, full of witchcraft, full of magic. They sold idols on the streets, carvings. There was a lot of mysticism in Ephesus. And Paul's letter focuses on the great riches, the inheritance, and the fullness that Christians have in Jesus Christ. The first three chapters, chapters 1, 2, and 3, he emphasizes Christian doctrine. It's all about theology, what you need to know. And he ends with the last three chapters of Ephesians talking about Christian behavior. What's the practical way of living? So here's your theology. Now how do you live in light of that theology? So if you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to read verses 15 to 21 again. Paul says this, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So for New Year's and this past week, my question in my brain, which I couldn't get out of my head, is how can I be better? And maybe a better way of asking that question is how can I grow 
to be more mature in my faith, to be a more mature Christian that honors and glorifies God better? So if you have your notes, that's the very top question that we're going to go through. How can we grow to be a more mature Christian this year? And from these couple of verses, there's really three points I think that I came up with that Paul's saying. The first is he says is we need to walk wisely in verse 15. The second, he says, make the best use of time, verse 16. And then the third is being spirit-filled, verse 18. So I want to focus on each one of these for a little bit this morning. So number one, we're told to walk wisely. Verse 15, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And throughout Paul's letter, he keeps using this word walk over and over again. If you're reading it in just this chapter alone, he uses it three times. He says in verse 2, walk in love. In verse 8, walk in the light. In verse 15, what we just read, walk in wisdom. And what he's doing is he's reminding the Christians in Ephesus to keep a close eye, to look carefully how they're living out their faith, how they're walking in their, in their faith in Jesus Christ. And to summarize the verses in, in, in chapter 5, verses 3 to 14, there's a huge paragraph there. But to summarize, Paul's telling the Christians that their faith in Jesus should separate them from their culture. It should separate them from the sinfulness and the evilness and the mysticism of the culture that they're living in. Their culture glorified sex, orgies, drunkenness, and he's saying you should have nothing to do with that. In one sense, he's saying you can't follow Jesus and follow your culture at the same time. They, they contradict each other. They butt heads. If we look at verses 7 to 11 of chapter 5, Paul says this, Therefore do not become partners with them. That them is the unbelievers. He calls them the sons of disobedience. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are in the light, or now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to, to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitfulness the works of darkness, but instead expose them. So he starts in 15 by walking wisely, by saying, look carefully. As we walk carefully and wisely, we're better equipped to be on guard against Satan and temptations because we'll be on the lookout. We won't be ignorant of how Satan operates and how sin can creep in uh, very sneakily. Now, growing up, my family went to the city a lot. My dad was NYPD, so he knew how to navigate around subways. He knew all the best places to eat, the best places to visit, when to visit them when they weren't crowded. He also had friends that gave us special access to places. I remember one time we went up to the crown of the Statue of Liberty. It was a pretty um, scary spiral staircase up, but I'm glad that I did it. I conquered a fear of heights. But um, I never discovered until years later how stressful it is to travel into the city. Maybe this is just me, and maybe this will go over your head, but maybe some of you are going to say, like, amen, yes, preach, yes, the city is stressful. I didn't realize how stressful it was. Little did I know that when I'm you know, holding my dad's hand and, and I'm looking up at all the tall skyscrapers, I'm in Times Square, I see the huge screens, while I'm like this, right, my dad's head is on a swivel, constantly looking out for our safety, right, because he's trained that way as a cop, but also to make sure that we're going in places we should be and avoiding the dangerous places of the city. 
And I remember years later, I decided to go to the city without my dad. And uh, he sat me down and told me the best way to avoid pickpocketers or thieves, how to basically not get murdered. And he said the, the best way is to be on guard and to not be distracted. Always keep your head up and, and know where you're going. Now, you could argue that probably scarred me for life, and that's probably why I hate going to the city. Uh, but that's just, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that later, not, not this morning. But um, the point here is kind of the same that Paul is making. He's saying Christians who are alert, who are on guard, who are, who are, who are carefully looking how they're navigating through culture, through their life, through their faith, if they're on guard against Satan, you'll be, e- you'll be more easy to walk wise. It'll be easier to walk in wisdom and to not fall into foolish living. Paul doesn't specifically say in this section what walking wisely looks like, but if we go back to verses 1 and 2, he gives us a little bit of a sneak peek of what it might mean to walk wise. So in verse 1, he says, Therefore, be uh, imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So if you have your notes under walk wisely point one, there's sort of A, B, C. From these two verses, there's three things that we can take away that Paul says. The first thing we're to do is to imitate or to mimic God. The word means to uh, imitate means to mimic or specifically someone who copies a specific characteristic or specific behavior of another person. Think of an understudy studying their master to become like their master. That's the word that he's using here. And in one author, in one book I read this week, he said this, that God himself is the standard of every thought, of every word, of every action of his children. And this truth is found even in the Old Testament as God commands the nation of Israel in Leviticus 19. God declares, it says this, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So right there, God is commanding them to mimic himself, to be like God. Be holy, for I am holy. That same author, later in his book, says this, that the object or the whole ceremonial and moral law under the Old Covenant, right? all those laws in the Old Covenant, have the same purpose as Christ's coming under the New Covenant in the New Testament. And more specifically, it's to make us more like God. So in the Old Testament, the law was supposed to set Israel apart from the culture, from the world around, and they were supposed to represent and mimic God to the culture around them. And as Jesus came and died on the cross, he shows us how to live in a way to mimic God. So as Christians, we're continually being sanctified, Being sanctified means becoming more and more like Jesus, more and more holy. It's a process, a lifelong process, and we're continually being sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can't do it by ourselves. As we read the Word of God, as we pray, as we obey His will, we're being more and more conformed to the image of Jesus. And one attribute of the Holy Spirit is He actually makes us more and more like God and without him, the Bible says we're slaves to sin. We're slaves to the, the, to the desires and the lust of our flesh. In Romans 8, Paul would say this. He says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, 
in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And my encouragement as I'm reading this is that my Christian brothers and sisters, my church family here this morning, is that God's predestined us to be conformed in the image of Jesus. Not by our own strength, not by our own doing, but how? Through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we are to mimic God. And I have to say this too, it's really hard to mimic, it's hard to imitate somebody if you don't know them. So as as a Christian, we should be longing, we should be wanting to spend time with with God through reading his word, how he has revealed himself to us, through communion and prayer with him. So if we don't know him, we can't really mimic him. So my, also as I'm reading this, my challenge is, are we spending time in his word? Are we spending time getting to know him so that we can better imitate him? Now the second thing we see in verse 2, letter B, how do we walk wisely? Paul would say is we have to walk, <laughs> the notes say walk and walk. I just laughed at that. It's supposed to say walk in love. It is to walk in love, verse 2. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So not only should we be mimicking being like God, like a child who imitates and looks and copies their parents, but we should be also loving others as Jesus has loved us, walking in his love. And Jesus' love for us, there's multiple ways we can look at this, but the first thing is it's divinely unconditional. His love is unconditional. It's a love that depends entirely on who Jesus is and has nothing to do with who we are. It's a love with no expectation of anything given back in return. It's a love that's freely given. One definition was unconditional love. It's a love that that depends entirely on the one who loves and not on the merit or the attractiveness or the response of the one loved. His love is also self-sacrificial. Paul says he gave himself up for us. One author said this, Even with all the kind and merciful acts that Jesus demonstrated to all those in Israel and Jerusalem and in Galilee, had he stopped short of the cross, he would have not loved us in the full sense of biblical love. Why? Because we'd still be in our sin. We would still be hopeless and helpless in our state before God. Another thing to look at is we're to forgive as Jesus forgave us. God's basis for forgiving humans in the Bible, he always demanded sacrifice. In the Old Testament, he demanded animal sacrifices. In the New, which in the Old Testament, those were temporary sacrifices. They they weren't eternal. In the New Testament, we have Jesus' eternal sacrifice which covers our sin once and for all. We're justified before the Lord. So we're to love like Jesus. We're to forgive as Jesus has forgiven us. In order for us to receive salvation, to be adopted as sons and daughters by God, to be justified, to be forgiven, Jesus had to die on the cross. Paul says it this way in Romans 5, but God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were still sinners, In our helpless state, Christ died for us. John MacArthur says 
because Christ has paid the penalty for every sin, we as Christians have no right to hold any sin against a person, even a non-believer. So we are to forgive as we've been forgiven, to love as we've been loved, and to mimic God in our faith. So again, how do we walk wisely? Those three things. Imitate God, love others as Jesus loved us, forgive others as we've been forgiven. Now going back to verses 15 and 16, point two in your notes, Paul says to make the best use of our time. He says, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise but wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. And this phrase, making the best use of time, it's better translated, and in Sid's Bible, I think he was reading the King James Version, it's better translated to this phrase, redeeming the time. It's a word that refers to buying out or buying back something. It was used of buying a slave in order to set them free. It's, it's a word of really redemption, buying with the, uh, with the point of making something redeemable. So as Christians, we are to redeem, we're to buy up, we're to use all the time that we have and devote it to the Lord. And we do this a couple ways. One way we do this is by taking advantage of every opportunity to serve God and to glorify him. Not doing things to build ourselves up, not doing things to, to sort of puff up our own pride and, and ego, but rather using it and serving others and, and glorifying God through these times. Another way that we can devote time to the Lord is by rejecting or avoiding shunning away sin and following righteousness, being obedient to the Lord's commands. Another way is to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ at any chance we get. And I know I'm being honest, and if you're being honest, you'll probably agree, I, I fail at this all the time. I don't redeem all my time for the Lord. There have been times where I got home from going like to the bagel store, and I said to Stephanie, I was like, man, I think I just missed out on an opportunity. There's somebody in the parking lot that just asked me a question, and I was just like, you know what, I'm too hungry to answer your question. I'm too hungry, right? And I want to just go home, and I want to talk to you. And really shame on me because I'm not redeeming. I'm not using the time I have, what, to glorify God or to evangelize. In other words, Paul's saying we're to make every moment count for God and for lost souls, to go out and to evangelize, to go out and spread the gospel. And why should we be redeeming this time? Why should we be making the best use of it? Paul says because the days are evil. As Paul is writing this letter, he's in prison, and there's persecution happening to the Christians. Years later, Christians will be persecuted even more intensely and brutally slaughtered by Emperor Nero. And even today, although not so much where we live in America, Christians still face intense persecution all around the world. And it's interesting because countries where Christianity is spreading the most rapidly are the same countries that have the most brutal persecutions. I thought that was really interesting. And I thought more about it. And truly, really Christians who know and are aware of how evil culture is, how evil sin and the earth is, how sin rampant it is, they tend to be the ones who redeem their time to go and spread the gospel for God's glory and to evangelize and to spread the kingdom of God. So not only should we be making the best use, redeeming our time because the days are evil, but also because our time on earth is limited. No one knows when their last day will be. In the book of James, this is what he says in, in, in chapter 4 about speaking about the fragility of life. 
He says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Our lives are like when we breathe out on a cold winter day. If When you inhale and then you, you exhale, what do you see? You see your breath like a puff of smoke, like a cloud. But then what happens seconds later? It disappears. It like dissolves. It goes away. Life is that fragile and that short, according to James. And one expression I've been hearing over and over again these past four months when it comes to being a new parent is this, and I'm sure Stephanie could agree, don't blink or else you'll miss it. Right? Don't blink or else you'll miss it. Or people tend to say, before you know it, Naya will be, and then fill in the blank. One person said, before you know it, you'll be walking her down the aisle. I was like, hey, come on, let's, <laughs> let's, let's bring it back. That's too, that's too far ahead. Right, but there is some truth to that. Time really does fly by. It feels like I just graduated college a year or two ago, but every Friday night after youth group when I'm at home laying in bed in pain after running around and playing games with these kids, I'm like, I'm getting old. Or when Stephanie looks at my hair and, and likes to point out all the gray hairs, it's like, okay, all right, I'm getting old, I guess. Right, what Paul's saying here is don't waste your time. Don't waste the time that God has given you here on earth. Make the best use of it. Redeem it and use it for God's glory. Use it to advance the kingdom of God. And my last point, number three, if you're looking at your notes, how do we grow to be a more mature Christian? Paul would argue this, to be spirit-filled. Verse 18. He says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with with the Spirit. Now, Paul doesn't explicitly define what it means to be Spirit-filled, but he does tell us what it looks like to be Spirit-filled in the verses that follow. So, under letter uh, number three, you have letters A, B, C. The first thing he says about what it means to be Spirit-filled is uh, letter A, is to have joy and love. He, he, He tells us what a body of believers looks like that's filled with the Spirit. They have joy and they have love. In verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. He's talking about a singing church, a church that's overflowed, a body of believers that's overflowed with joy, which stirs stirs them up to sing God's word. I don't know if you've ever seen somebody who has been really mad or angry. They normally don't sing. They normally don't dance, and they don't express themselves outwardly. It's usually when you're overfilled with joy, and maybe it's mainly in kids, but I've seen some adults do this. And when you're just joyful and you're so happy, sometimes you do a little happy dance, or you'll do a little song, right? When you're in a really good mood, you do, you'll do a little song or something. In the same way, right, our joy and love that's found in Christ and it's in our hearts, it should stir outwardly and cause us to what? To worship, to sing songs, to sing his words, to address one another with psalms and hymns. When we gather together as a church, do we sing to the Lord? Or are you just singing because everybody else is singing? When you're all alone, are you making a melody to the Lord in your heart? God isn't impressed by the sound of the voice, but rather the heart of the one who's singing. God delights in the songs of those whose hearts are fixed on him. God would much rather have the worst singer in the world 
with the best heart sing to him than the best singer in the world who doesn't know him sing to him. We sang Come Thou Fount, verse 1 of Come Thou Fount. Come Thou Fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. When I read that and when I sing that, I always think of this. It's this prayer of saying, God, fix my heart, adjust my heart so that it's in tune with who you are, it's in tune with the Spirit, that I'm able to sing and reflect and worship you for your grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing calls for songs of loudest praise. So when we reflect on his never-ending mercy, it demands, it calls for songs, not of whispers, but what? Of loudest praise, of of joy, of cheer. Being spirit-filled, you have joy and love. Letter B, being thankful. Verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Are we thankful for the love that God has given us? That Jesus died in our place on the cross? I'll be honest, sometimes I forget. Sometimes it just sounds like a cute little fairy tale. Wow, oh Jesus, thank you for loving me and for dying on the cross for my sins. That, that was so nice of you. But usually around Easter time, it's that, it's that vivid reminder of what the cross, how brutal, how painful, but also how much love Jesus had for us. Funny enough, during the Advent season, we sang a song called This Is Jesus. And it has the same melody of Come Thou Fount. And in verse 2 or 3, it says, Oh, the mystery who could fathom, God would leave his holy throne for a manger for a sinner, for us all to be his own. And you reflect, you're like, God, why would you love me? Why would you die for me? Right? That, that mystery, why would you leave your throne in heaven for a manger? For a cross, why would you do that? Love, his grace, his mercy, because of who he is, not because of who we are. Even when it seems like there's nothing to be thankful for, as Christians, we should be remembering the cross. The cross shows us how far God went and is willing to go to redeem and to reconcile us to himself. Jesus Christ gave up his life, so why? We can have a restored relationship be reconciled, have peace with our Heavenly Father. One author I was reading said this, do we thank God for the sobs as well as the songs? And what he's really saying is, despite our circumstances, do you praise God even when you're crying, even when you're depressed, even when your world has been shattered, the the carpet's been ripped out from underneath you? Right? It's easy to praise God and give thanks when you're happy, when things in life are going well, but it's harder when your world's collapsed. As Paul says, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Letter C, being spirit-filled means submitting to one another. Verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. An author said this, that in the early church, they saw each other not in the light of their professions or social standings, but in the light of Christ, and therefore they saw dignity and value of every man and woman. James, in his letter, in in chapter 2, he talks about the sin of partiality. He tells us how we should not be judging people on the outward appearances. We should not be treating those who are wealthy with more respect, with more honor in the temple, in the church, because of their social status. Right, that's a sin. And we see Paul saying here, 
what? Submitting to one another. Being humble, showing humility, counting others more important than yourself. As Christ showed humility and humbled himself by, being, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, Philippians chapter 2, we're to have that same spirit of humility towards each other. We should be seeking the welfare of others before our own and to be mutually submissive. And this all stems what? Out of our reverence, out of our fear, out of our love, our devotion, our respect of Christ. And in the next section of Ephesians, Paul breaks down what submission looks like, what biblical submission, godly submission looks like in marriage, in the family, even in slavery, and even in the church. And I don't have time to unpack it all, but in one commentary I was reading, there was a little paragraph, and it really just hit the nail on the head. This is what the author said in in light of submission out of reverence in Christ for one another. He says, Every obedient, spirit-filled Christian is a submitting Christian, a husband who demands his wife's submission to him but does not recognize his own obligation to submit to her distorts God's standard for the marriage relationship and cannot rightly function as a godly husband. Parents who demand obedience from their children but do not recognize their own obligation to submit in loving sacrifice to meet their children's needs are themselves disobedient to their heavenly father and cannot rightly function as godly parents. So as Paul's saying here is what? We're supposed to be submitting to one another as we all submit to the lordship of Christ. And just a few application questions as I wrap it up. Right? And I was just thinking, what would it look like to be a joyful, a thankful, a submissive, a spirit-filled Christian towards your spouse? What would that look like? Maybe a simple, silly illustration is maybe instead of coming home and asking your wife, where's dinner? I'm hungry. Where is it? I, I worked all day. Where is it? Instead of saying that, maybe you ask her, how can I help you? How can I serve you? Or maybe instead of piling up the garbage and waiting for your husband to come home and empty the garbage bin, you empty it for him. Right? And I have this joke that in our house, we play the, the leaning tower of garbage. Right? It's whoever stacks the garbage up the highest, and if they fall over, they take the garbage out. Right? And, but, and we do it out of love, and it's a little game. Right? There's no hard feelings in that. Right? But what would it look like if, as a husband, I serve my wife first? What would it look like as, as my wife would serve me first? Right? It's a mutual submission, a mutual love. What would it look like to be joyful, thankful, submissive, and spirit-filled towards non-believers? Maybe it means showing them the gospel with your actions, your attitude, the language you use. Maybe it means asking them the spiritual questions, telling them about Jesus. Instead of just quietly trying to be on the fringe and not be noticed, maybe it means taking a stand for your faith being spirit-filled? What would it look like to be a joyful, thankful, submissive, and spirit-filled church body? Right? Maybe instead of complaining, there could be an opportunity to step up and serve. Instead of worrying about the basic needs that you have or maybe that you struggle privately, maybe it means sharing your burdens with one another. In Galatians, we're commanded, what? To bear each other's burdens. We're not meant to go through our Christian walk by ourselves. As a church family, we, we love to pray for you. We want to help in any way possible. Right? We're here to bear each other's burdens. Ultimately, we give them the Christ, but we can pray and we can help 
along as Christians, as a body of believers. Maybe instead of arguing or calling each other names or, or having beef with one another, in love we listen and we pray for them. And I want to go back to my original question that I started with, right? How can I be better this year? Me, David. How can me, David, how can I be better this year? How can I grow to be a more mature Christian that honors God? As I went through this, the three things Paul says, to walk wisely, redeem your time, and to be spirit-filled. And I joked about my resolution, right, about going to the gym, which that I probably should go, right? But my resolution this year is to be a better husband, a better minister, a better church member, a better Christian by imitating my Lord and my Savior, Jesus Christ. And I pray and I hope that you can make that challenge for yourself as well this year. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you, Lord, that there's nothing that I can add to it to make it better. It's perfect the way it is. We thank, I thank you, Lord, that you've revealed yourself to us. I thank you, Lord, for showing us your love by dying on the cross for us, Jesus. I thank you, as we prayed earlier, just for this year. Some of us might have had a better year than another. But Lord, we thank you for the blessings you've given us. Lord, I pray that even in this coming year, we can be spirit-filled. I pray that as a church, as a body of believers, as spouses, as church members, as co-workers, we can just redeem our time for you this year. Jesus, we thank you for loving us so much, for dying on the cross for our sins. We thank you that there's nothing we can do to earn your love or deserve it, but you freely gave it to us. So Jesus, I just pray that as we uh, sing this next song, that it can, we can use it to prepare our hearts for communion. That we can take a moment to just um, examine our hearts, that we can confess our sins to you, and that we can just enjoy fellowship together as a body of believers. Jesus, we thank you for everything you've given us. In your holy name we pray, amen.